Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to talk to Greg Sargent from the Washington Post about the latest intrigue surrounding the search of Mar-a-Lago. Or maybe not the latest, latest, because we recorded this week's show before Thursday's hearing was complete. And by the way, that they shopped around for a Trump judge. They found a Trump judge, and she's a little bonkers. So she's closed that hearing and um, turned off the Wi-Fi connection and told everybody that they can't tweet anything else. So usually I would actually know something that was going on in that hearing because it's, it's ongoing right now, but we don't. Anyway, um, then we'll be joined by Slate senior reporter Mark Joseph Stern uh, to talk about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's government ruining people's lives, uh, people of color mostly living in heavily Democratic areas, in order to create some political propaganda, propaganda that advances the GOP's venerable big lie, uh, long preceding Trump, that uh, voter fraud is a uh, significant problem in the United States. Um, And while the right is hitting the fainting couches over Joe Biden, suggesting that MAGA is a, quote, semi-fascist movement, which I should point out is extremely generous, the semi part was overly generous, Um, DeSantis is not the only right winger who is or has used real people, real people as props in a propaganda campaign and 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 hurt real people uh, in in service of a propaganda campaign. I think we need to call this out because it's so it's so pernicious. This stuff is maddening to me. Let's. Just recall a story we touched on at the time in 2018. Here on here on We've Got Issues, we talked about this. Trump sent 7,000 troops to our uh, heavily militarized southern border, announcing the operation, which he called Operation Faithful Patriot, like two weeks before the, the midterms. And, you know, he had blathered on about the caravans, and then he put these troops there, and then he stopped talking about the caravans. Um, And he kept them there through Thanksgiving and through Christmas and really until the end of his presidency, despite the fact that they had nothing to do, right? The first week they did photo ops, um, putting up barbed wire. And then after the barbed wire was up, they literally had nothing to do. And what happened was that most of them were in the middle of nowhere and they were living in poor conditions. And they turned to drugs and alcohol. They got into a huge number of car crashes. There were uh, car crash deaths. There were uh, crimes. There were a bunch of suicides. Um, You know, of course, they were living in shitty conditions far from home in the middle of nowhere. And of course, the right is all support the troops, but they don't they don't give a shit. They did not give a shit that they're. Dear leader was making these troops miserable over the holidays so Fox News could have some visuals for its uh, border fear-mongering segments, and for no other reason, right? Real people in, in service of a propaganda campaign. This is what happens when you, uh, when you put people in government who don't care, right? Who, who hate government and, and hate certain constituencies. It's... It's amazing. And then, then more recently, um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, right? He's spent tens of millions of dollars busing asylum seekers across the country and just dropping them off in blue states. And I, 
I want to stress that these are mostly asylum seekers. Asylum, se- se- asylum seekers have broken no laws. They are not, quote, illegal immigrants. Although you, you might not know that if you, if you watch the mainstream news, because they are constantly referred to as migrants. And so anyway, um, some of these asylum seekers had family connections or support networks or whatever in Texas. And yet Abbott's goons, I don't know which agency he he used to round them up, uh, stuck them on buses for up to three-day trips to D.C. and New York. Uh, Some went to Chicago. I think he sent some to Portland and Seattle. And then they just dropped them off with whatever they were carrying, you know, the, the clothes on their backs. And nothing else. Uh, New York's Immigrant Affairs Commissioner, a guy named Manuel Castro, he told reporters, and I quote, we are finding people who are thirsty, hungry, and even sick. The treatment of these asylum seekers is just deplorable. He cited a case in which a family with a three-year-old and an eight-year-old were told that they were going to Wisconsin when they showed up in New York. And he said, quote, while they were excited to be in New York, they had taken a three-day journey to New York without much water, food, and they were scared. There were sick people on these buses who had to be hospitalized. It's absolutely horrific. It is clearly a pretty clear human rights violation. That's not necessarily something that's enforceable, but, uh, you know, it's a fucking stunt. It's a stunt. It's a stunt. Honestly, I, I think those people, by the way, will be better off in blue states at the end of the day. So I, I'm happy we're taking them. But it's uh, it's inexcusable to just hurt people like this for your partisan messaging, for your perpetual, you know, white grievance campaign, because that's what all of this comes down to. And there are lots of examples like this, right? The ACLU noted this week that there are more laws in red states banning trans girls from participating in school sports than there are trans girls who tried to participate in school sports. Let that sink in. They're happy to make these girls, who, by the way, are often going through difficult adjustments as is during a difficult time in life for everybody, you know, teenage years are not easy, into like objects of scorn for nothing, for nothing but to give Fox News some fodder, right? And then, as we'll see with Mark Joseph Stern, Ron DeSantis is sending people to prison for trying to vote, right? And I should point out, you know, there's no point in talking about hypocrisy. These people say, well, we're for limited government, you know. Um, DeSantis spent $4 million tax dollars on basically this stunt. They turned up 20 cases that they called voter fraud, Uh, When we speak with Mark Joseph Stern, we'll see why that's not even accurate. But even if it were, that's 20 votes out of a voting eligible population of about 15 million. So you're talking about uh, like 195,000 bucks in public funds for each vote. I, I joke, you know, I always joke, you wouldn't take your car to a mechanic who hates automobiles. This is what happens when you put people who hate government in charge of it. They just abuse it. They just abuse it. And in these cases, you know, it's been com- it's become common to say, like, the cruelty is the point with these authoritarian types. 
But what these stories have in common is that the cruelty is in fact a side benefit. The right-wing propaganda is the point, right? Stimulating Fox News viewers' uh, amygdalas, right? The fear centers, that's the point. And if this stuff isn't fascism, then the word has no meaning at all. And on that happy note, and I I promise this week's show has some positive stuff. I, I promise. On that happy note, let's take a quick break and then come right back with Greg Sargent. Stay tuned. Mais um dia passado na praga da má vida Acordar ressacado na casa de uma amiga Tigres dopados, deitados na cozinha Niggas enrolados no quarto com bandidas Desvia até o cais cobrar quem me devia Telefone desligado, ninguém me atendia Mais um dia à deriva Na correria, correr atrás do que não sei, nigga Viver na cidade é caro, é ruim Fome e vaidade não é para mim Subi ao bairro alto para fumar um i Apanhei o autocarro para a Paris Se crescer fosse fácil, nigga, se fosse fácil Não havia tanto homem puto e há rapaz Há tempo para tudo O tempo é passado, presente, futuro Há tempo para rodar, correr no mundo Há tempo para voar e bater no fundo Mas o tempo está a andar e o tempo é curto Já é tempo para ser adulto Welcome back. I'm joined now by Greg Sargent. Greg is a favorite of the show, a savvy observer of American politics who writes for the Washington Post. You should read him and also follow him on Twitter. Uh, Greg, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on again. We have news to discuss as we record on Wednesday afternoon. Merrick Garland has said that his Justice Department would speak through court filings, not leaks. And they did speak last night, Tuesday night, um, with a 36-page response to a rather goofy motion by the Trump camp. Um, the, the Trump people had asked for the appointment of a special master to review materials uh, for executive privilege, which is not even relative, relevant in this case. Um, and all the documents have already been reviewed, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Greg, it's important to remember that the DOJ tried to recover these documents in a low-key manner. They sent a small team of FBI agents in plain clothes at a time when Mar-a-Lago was closed. Uh, One local Florida blogger tweeted that he had been told that a search warrant was being conducted, but that wasn't reported by any major news media until Donald Trump started throwing tantrums and calling the search a raid. So here we are, less than 90 days from the midterms. The winds have already been shifting towards the Democrats because of this like far-right Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, Also, just because normal Democratic voters are seeing all this violent rhetoric from the right. And Trump has seemed almost intent on um, making his blatant disregard for the rule of law and his supporters' threats of violence the big story in the media. Uh, Wouldn't the the GOP prefer to be talking about just about anything else? Yeah, I would think so. I'd like to amplify one of the points you made there, which is that DOJ tried to pursue this in a low-key way. You can actually go a lot farther than that, right? I mean, the National Archives spent all of 2021 trying to get the, you know, the documents back. Um, after they saw some of them, they referred the matter to DOJ. DOJ sent letters. Then there was a meeting um, with several DOJ agents and a couple of Trump lawyers. At that point, uh, things were still being resolved quietly. In fact, Trump's own lawyers. Uh, signed a statement saying that um, 
that they had turned everything over pretty much. It's a bit unclear from the wording of it, but that's the essence of it. It, it seems pretty obvious that DOJ didn't want this to result in the sort of uh, search warrant uh, raid that, that did end up happening for all the reasons that we can see, right? Trump would immediately demagogue it and use it to whip up rage and hate and against uh, and possibly violence against the FBI and and who knows who else. And that all happened. And so, I mean, the story has been all throughout an effort to recoup these documents quietly. And all throughout, Trump has put it back into the spotlight because, look, even this filing, again, was in response to a a, a really clownish motion um, that the Trump camp filed right. mainly because they had been criticized in the press for not um, trying to stop the review of documents. In other words, they've been called out, including on Fox News, oddly enough, for their inaction, their passivity uh, around this this search. And so they filed this thing and, and, and DOJ... Um, revealed a lot of new details in this 36-page response. Now, there's been a lot of uh, tea leave reading about whether Merrick Garland is going to charge Donald Trump with any crimes, uh, either related to these violations of the Espionage Act and obstruction, or for conspiring uh, to pull off an auto coup in 2020 and early 2021. My sense in reading this filing is that DOJ's response could have been... um, a lot more like narrowly focused and offered less detail. In other words, they could have dealt with the legal issues raised by Trump's team without adding, um, you know, some very interesting tidbits. Like just for example, uh, the filing included the fact that some of the agents reviewing these documents needed to get additional security clearances to do their job, to do the review. The, yeah. they, they had already existing clearances, but it was so sensitive that they needed to get additional clearances. My favorite little tidbit in there along those lines is when it says in a throwaway line that Trump's own lawyers treated the documents as classified. Yeah. Right. Well, which, I mean, which they, was they've a deft never way exerted... of undercutting Trump's spin that he's been declassifying them. The, the sentence said something like, not only did Trump's lawyers not uh, say that Trump had declassified the documents, they themselves treated the documents as classified. Right. They'd wrap them up in a special paper or packaging, <laughs> whatever. Um, and and it's it's been interesting in that the classification status of these documents are irrelevant for what DOJ, the, cri- the crimes listed by the DOJ on the affidavit. Right. That's true. Um, but at the same time, um, they are not insignificant when it comes to the court of public opinion. Right. And they may not be, they're not insignificant also in terms of the prosecutor's discretion. I think that's important. The Agreed. Espionage Act has is very broadly written and people mistakenly, you know, will leave out a classified document outside of a safe by accident. They don't charge all of those things. So when they're deciding whether to charge, they look at a lot of aggravating and mitigating factors, including how um, how high high level the classification is and, and whatnot. But it's been incoherent in that his defense rests on the idea that he 
declassified the most sensitive documents willy-nilly by just taking them upstairs to his residence. And that included, um, you know, special access program documents, right. the highest level of classification. So even if his excuse were accurate, that would be wildly reckless with the most uh, sensitive national intelligence documents. Right. I, you know, I think, I think there's like sort of a broader pathology that this gets at. Right. Um, and, and, and that pathology ultimately is blowing up in his face in the following way. Trump really on some very profound level is deeply convinced in his magical reality bending powers. He really thinks that, and, and maybe not without good reason. I mean, he's been pretty successful <laughs> right. in bending reality a fair amount of the time. It's worked but, for him um, so far. Right? So, you know, he really is deeply convinced that if he, he can just spin away or make disappear any sort of set of damning facts, no matter no matter how damaging they are, either legally or or um, in terms of public opinion. And, and I really think that that's actually kind of led to his travails in many ways, because as you pointed out earlier, right, this new filing from DOJ is a response to the, to, to the Trump team. Um, and, and that original demand by the Trump team was itself reflecting that pathology, right? Trump needs to signal to his supporters at all times that he's got some big trick up his sleeve, He's got, you know, he's got his enemies exactly where he wants them. It's key to his mystique, right? I don't know. I mean, you probably get hate mail from Trump, Trump voters. A lot of it is always something like, well, what are you going to do when he does this? What are you going to do right. when he does that? Right? They, right. They're just completely bought into whatever new kind of shiny trick Trump's rolled out. And, and that's, I think that pathology kind of leads to what we're seeing now. I mean, I think it's a really good point because I, I've often said that Trump is kind of an idiot savant when it comes to playing the press um, and and appealing to his base. But it's never worked in the courts like his his track record in the courts is abysmal because all of that runs into the wall of reality. The courts are set up to be places where reality is tested against evidence, you know, and or claims are tested against evidence. And it, it just his track record in the courts is, is pathetic. So here they have offered this rich and pretty damning narrative in part to push back on the right wing conspiracy theories and maybe to attempt to diffuse the threats of violence to a degree. Right. Do you think that they're also preparing the ground for an indictment after the midterms? I mean, at this point, could they tell such a detailed story of criminality that is very much involves Trump personally and not pursue charges. So I, I think it's really hard for us to tell, right? Um, because they may be weighing all sorts of other factors. For instance, you, you know, we don't know, for instance, I think there were three classified documents found in Trump's desk, right? Um, wasn't that right? Or in one of the desks in Trump's office? But we don't yeah, know. It was, his, those... it was his desk. It was his desk. I don't remember the number, though. Yeah, I think it was a few, but but they didn't say that those specifically were were highly classified. And I'm just bringing that up as a sort of point um, to say that that you know a lot is going to turn on what they think they can prove in terms of his intent, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think we really know where that's going to end up. And so I don't I I don't feel like we can evaluate this based on the known facts. So, 
think we're well, going to have to wait. So it, I'm basing it not only, again, not only on what we know, but the way that they presented it. It seems to me that they're yeah. laying a groundwork. This is a communication with the, with the conservative media. Again, they only talk through filings. And, they, um, and I just want to point out that they had to request permission from the judge to make a 36-page filing because the maximum is usually 20 pages. So they had to right. say, listen, we want to do this like very detailed thing. And they released a lot of new information. By the way, Andrew Weissman, the former prosecutor who was on the uh, Mueller special counsel team, he tweeted just now, or it just came through my timeline, DOJ, big picture, you don't make a filing this strong, bold, and factually accusatory if you don't have any intention to indict. So we will see. We will see. I, I know yeah, that no, nothing is going to happen before I mean, the midterms. Maybe they're trying. I mean, this is not really kind of an area I know very well, but maybe they're trying to go for a, a trying to prod forth a plea deal. Maybe I can't see it. I can't see them pleading. I, I can't either. But maybe they'd like. They would like that, wouldn't they? <laughs> they would. That I mean, that would solve their problem, their political problems, right? Exactly. Or their their. I mean, or let's talk about the the other piece of this, which is not just po- politics at the ballot box. Um, let's talk a little bit about the potential consequences of an indictment. Trump has always threatened to unleash political violence against his opponents. There's like this tendency right now for some people in the news media to be like, oh, this is shocking, right? Trump is threatening violence. It's It's been a consistent theme, right? In the 2016 campaign, during the campaign, he said, that the Second Amendment people might have to keep Hillary Clinton from um, appointing judges uh, when they were investigating him a couple of years later. He said, and I have the quote here. This was in 2019. I, it was, I think, I'm not sure if it was during the first impeachment process, but he said, I can tell you I have the support of the police, the support of the bikers for Trump. I have the tough people, but they don't play yeah. it tough until they go to a certain point, And then it would be very, very bad. So, None of this is new, but here's what what is, I think, new. Um, Other Republicans did not echo those threats explicitly, and now it's become kind of mainstream. Lindsey Graham, South Carolina senator, warned of riots following an indictment. A bunch of conservative pundits have echoed that warning. What do you make of that becoming something that's like not just a Trumpian thing, but a Republican thing? thing? Well, I think it's really ominous. I mean, you know, I I, I would point out that that a very large swath of the Republican party is essentially apologizing for the largest outbreak of political violence in, in the United States and in, in, in modern times. Uh, when it comes to January 6th, we can't, we can't like separate January 6th from these threats. Right. I mean, no, we can't. Um, we know that the Republicans who saw this violence up close at the very outset, at least for the first few days, um, such as Kevin McCarthy, were, were legitimately horrified by it and, and really, I think, had sort of looked into the eyes of what this movement had become, right? But they immediately kind of did an about-face and, and decided, you know, we're okay with these energies, right? Once, once the sort of dust had settled, the party-wide position, more or less, there are a few exceptions here and there, but the party-wide position essentially said, you know, we are going to apologize away, propagandize for, and do all we can to either prevent an accounting into or even to cover up 
this massive outbreak of political violence that was incited by our party leader for the purpose of destroying the American experiment. And so, you know, I think we didn't know that something like that could happen until it did, right? Um, And now it's after that that there's a mainstreaming of the kind of intimations of, of violent threats around a prosecution. And so, yeah, I think it's ominous. Yeah, it's it's very ominous. And I think that a normal party should have uh, engaged in some self-reflection, uh, if not uh, some some really rethinking of, of their rhetoric with guns, et cetera, et cetera, their insurrectionist theory of the Second, Amend- Second Amendment, when the dude whose van was festooned with Trump uh, swag sent pipe bombs to all of Trump's perceived enemies. That should have been the wake-up call. Uh, and that, of course, preceded January 6th. Folks, Actually, that brings um, up another dimension to this that I think is worth talking about, right? We, kn- I mean, another, another thing that ha- we've seen over and over and over again is that Trump's rhetoric actually does inspire either serious threats of violence that are thwarted or actual violence, um, political violence. And he doesn't stop, even though that has happened repeatedly. Um, and so there you have a pretty clear sign that he's perfectly at an absolute minimum. He's perfectly fine with his words resulting in that type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, like there's, there's Trump who is a, 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 a toxic narcissist. And of course he's not going to see uh, consequences for other people, how his, his rhetoric impacts other people. But when you talk about someone like Lindsey Graham, you know, what is, what is his excuse? And I think that that's, that's more troubling. You have, yeah, it's not Trump being Trump. It's the, 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 this large swath of Republican elites also being Trump. And that, that's the really scary thing. Um, I want to circle back to something I touched on earlier, which is the fact that Republicans wanted this to be a referendum on Biden whose popularity appears to be rebounding to some degree, but is still, uh, you know, underwater in terms of approval. And you wrote that, and I quote, a strange split screen effect has taken hold throughout the GOP. On one screen, Republicans are increasingly anxious about revelations involving Trump uh, while concocting ever more inventive ways to achieve distance from them. On the other, GOP candidates in crucial midterm contests are if anything, getting more Trumpy. So the fever may be breaking among some Republican elites. Obviously, Mitch McConnell has complained about the quote unquote candidate quality, which Trump has to a large degree dictated, but the base won't permit a break with Trump. How how do you see all of this playing out? Well, I just want to say this first. Everybody should watch that Blake Masters video, which was sort of one of the things that I touched on in that piece. Have you seen it yet? Yes, I have. Yeah, it, it's, it's I think, a really, really interesting glimpse into the kind of dark vortex that Trump is exerting on, on some of these candidates. I mean, Blake Masters, who's really kind of a, a geek, right? Um, Silicon Valley background, pretty, pri- pretty privileged guy all around. On this video, he, he engages in abusiveness toward uh, Kamala Harris, 
and we wonder why he picked her of all people. Yes. Um, yeah. Right. And also sort of did all these Trumpy gestures and, and it just, I, I just thought it was a really interesting sort of display of, of how they're all trying to capture this Trumpian magic that he's, he, he's been able to capture. Right. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, I'm going to, let me just insert this. I think it's actually kind of amusing. Um, some of the Trump kids this week accused Ron DeSantis of like almost copyright infringement. And DeSantis does stand <laughs> like Trump and he yeah. uses his fingers the same way. And he tries to match his speech cadence. They were like, what the fuck? You're stealing our thing. <laughs> right. Well, I guess they care Greg. about that now that DeSantis is a, ri a rival, right? Yes, exactly I mean, right. I'm sure they like having lots of Trump mini-me's running around if they're just like, you know, you know, dippy little Blake Masters or, or like, yes. you know, J J.D. Vance or whatever. But once it's a guy who's like looking absolutely who's looking competitive in the polls. Trump himself, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. No, that's funny. I mean, so, that, that's what I mean. So they are getting more Trumpy, but there's sort of like a lot of ways in which they're, they're the, these candidates are getting more Trumpy, right? Like you take someone like uh, um, Doug Mastriano, who's who's running for 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 governor in Pennsylvania, he's maybe not imitating the gestures, but he's a thousand percent serious about being fully insurrectionist and overturning yes. future elections. And so, you know, it's it's a little hard to tell how this stuff all plays. Um, each kind of I don't know rendition of the Trump Minimi Act. But it sure seems like there's this interesting split screen where a lot of Republicans who, who are maybe a little more sane about their chances in the midterms are really thinking, you know, these tendencies aren't helping at this point. Maybe we thought we needed Trump and Trumpism to capture all the, these energies, but they're now, there's now like a net loss for us in it. So there's, they, they, the, you have those Republicans on one side, but then the ones who are fully devoted to the idea that Trump and Trumpism is essential to capturing the political and ideological energy they need to win these races. It's just, I thought it was an interesting tension. I mean, it is an interesting tension. And I think something that people need to keep in mind, you know, the punditry has been extremely, um, the conventional wisdom has been solidly expecting a red wave for the entire cycle. Yeah. And the reason that the out party tends to do better in midterms is straightforward. The members of the party that hold the White House think, OK, we've got this to a degree. We can relax a little bit. Right. And the members of the out party say, oh, my God, we're terrified of what these right. people are doing. The world is They're in power. We're scared. And the Trumpification of the GOP you know, I'm speaking as the Democrats have a very narrow advantage in the generic ballot polling average at 538. The energy, the Trumpification of the GOP is terrifying for normal people, the extremism. And then, of course, it, it's related to his court overturning Roe v. Wade, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just absolutely. a reaction to the extremism. But that's a big part of it. Absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and then the other reason that there's sort of this disparity in turnout is that the party who that controls the White House, their voters are maybe disillusioned to some degree by, you know, they've, 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 they've come off this kind of high of, of 
taking down the villain, right, in the previous election. But then all of a sudden, it takes like a year of negotiations with Joe Manchin to do nothing. Um, <laughs> and then that kind of creates a sort of corresponding lack of energy among the voters in the president's party. Of course, that's also changing now, right? Um, I think Roe v. Wade is important there, right? The overturning of Roe v. Wade kind of gives Democratic voters something to be energized and angry about on their side. And also, you're starting to see some successes, you know. Uh, the a gun string bill, of successes. Right? A string of successes, yeah. yeah. And, and by the way, these are this is all substantial stuff, right? I mean, this was the, yes, you know, the largest investment in combating climate change that Congress has ever made. That's a major breakthrough, really. Um, a yes. paradigm shifting breakthrough, I think. The the gun bill was actually, I think, a really important uh, piece of legislation in many ways, and also represented something of a breakthrough. So, the dynamics really could be kind of different from a traditional midterm for a whole range of reasons. Yeah, I mean, they already are looking very different from a, yeah. a traditional midterm. Right, and um, you know, we're seeing every day kind of like. There's a news of a new microchip factory or new investments in yeah. um, in uh, EV batteries or you know whatever. Every day there is a story like that. Um, you and and my friend Paul Waldman wrote recently about Democrats trying hard to capitalize on these things and to kind of take a victory lap for um, possibly potentially uh, likely creating a, a lot of new green jobs with uh, labor protections, with investments from the Inflation Reduction Act, the uh, CHIPS Act, et cetera. Infrastructure, of course. Yeah, infrastructure bill too. Big deal. Um, I wonder if you could just talk about how how they can break through because you have this environment where there's just always a lot of noise and they don't have a Fox News to really tout. You know, Trump, for all his ineptitude was extremely good at taking credit for things he did and did not even achieve. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a problem. And in addition to the, to the, you know, profound media asymmetry, which is also an enormous problem. And that's that the accomplishments of the president's party don't always actually end up motivating the president's voters, which is a strange perversity since the, the lack of accomplishments seems to dispirit them. Um, I don't know how you get around that problem, but I guess I, you know, you get a Fox that? news. is how you get around that. You, you need to get a Fox news on your side. Right. You Although I guess the Fox, if, if you, if you try and imagine what a, a left, a left wing and liberal slash progressive Fox news would look like, could you even replicate it? I mean, no, you know, you Fox couldn't. news is, is all about just creating this, you know, rotating cast of, of hideous and horrifying enemies you know, 24 seven, um, they're burning down your cities. They're swarming over the border, right. They're indoctrinating your children. You can never get away with it. The perverts are like preying on your kids. I don't know how you, you you do something like that. I mean, you know, you, you could probably continually highlight the latest Republican insanity and their constant fomenting of an atmosphere of feral threats and violence and rage. Um, but I don't know if you could quite duplicate the Fox effect that way. Yeah, you can't. Um, so what do you think the, the game plan is for 
trying to capitalize on this in the in the last what do we got like 10 weeks until the midterms well i mean so if you look at what ron klain's been saying right it's all about like his twitter feed is just filled with these announcements right chip factory here chip factory there and and he 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 doesn't sort of say okay these green energy jobs and the manufacturing jobs of the future he says something more like across the board we're committed to creating you know, jobs at home that um, you don't need a college degree for. And so a subset of those would be these types of green energy manufacturing jobs. What Paul and I were kind of arguing is that there's kind of a way to disarm right-wing populism, I think, by saying something like, you know, we are the ones, we're the party who is actually investing in the manufacturing jobs of the future and when they fearmonger about the quote unquote Green New Deal or whatever, or or say that um, you know we're going to be really weak against China if we if we start transitioning to alternative energy sources, they're actually the ones who are trying to kill investments in the manufacturing jobs that you need for your future communities to survive. And so I think that's probably you know you, you're you're actually starting to see some of that from. Tim Ryan in Ohio and from from Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin, although I have to say they're not really centralizing it. And I can kind of understand why. I mean, abortion is so front and center. Right. I mean, look what happened in that yes. special election in New York. Right. I mean, that was really front. That's my, that's my district. Oh, it is. Yeah, that's where I live. New York. Yeah, we're going to have Pat Ryan on the show and uh, I, uh, we're working on it. I think in a after I, I'm taking off next week, I think we're going to have him on the week after that. Um, he is highly talented, that guy. I think uh, you know he I mean, is really pretty... talented. Yeah, yeah. you know, you I've, think so too? yeah, I've you know, I've been watching him kind of uh, since the 2018 primaries, uh, and he's been my county executive since then. So yeah, he's a he's definitely a sharp guy. He's a good guy. Uh, we're not perfectly ideologically aligned he's a bit more centrist than i am but i think he could be a kind of a katie porter type on that on that that's really interesting of... actually i'd love to ask you about that i mean so one thing that i i actually got to talk to pat ryan on the I morning know. after he won and that's, that's when, when you write was... for the washington post you get that i have to wait two weeks <laughs> they were like sorry we're talking to jake tapper today I'm well like, I, I have to actually you know it wasn't that easy to get him it, it took a fair amount of doing that morning no he's but, busy he's really, really yeah busy. no he was in pretty high demand that, that morning but what interests me about you saying that he's a bit more sort of cent, center center leaning is that at the same time he also seems to be willing to really frontally indict the republican plunge into authoritarianism and to link that to a very broad argument that it's Democrats and liberals that are really the party of freedom. And they're the ones who yeah. are, are trying to take away your rights. It's an extraordinarily to, effective right? message. And he's a very good messenger. You know, he never talks about it, but he won two bronze stars. He's actually a badass real veteran, not one of these guys who like, right. you know, did a, some mi minor in, in, you know, domestic stateside service and then touts his military background he's a, a real real badass um but that's why i bring up katie porter like katie porter for me if you look at her voting record her progressive punch record she is among the more conservative uh within within the democratic house caucus she is 
among the more conservative members, but she is beloved by the left because she does not take any shit. And yeah, I, think I think that's that, important too. You know, it's, I it's think not there's just... ideology and then there's not, not, you know, then there's kicking ass. Right. And, and, and are... you know, it, it might be really easy to sort of caricature that as, Oh, you know, all these besotted resistance people, they just love it when they're fed, you know, red meat, or I don't know what the left wing equivalent of red meat would be caviar. Or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, in the, yeah. in the, in the, in the right wing caricature. Right. Um, like great tempeh. Right. But, but, you know, it actually matters, right? Like, so when you have yes, a party like the Republican party sort of sinking into this kind of morass of, of, of radicalism and extremism and abandoning democracy and trying to foment an atmosphere of rage and threats and violence everywhere on pretty much every front <laughs> whenever they can, um, you need leaders to speak out and explain that, that that's what's happening. And I think that's my theory has long been that I think we've talked about Mallory McMorrow before on this show, haven't we? Yes. Um, yes. But the reason she broke through when she just tore up that Republican for calling her a groomer is that right. People, you know, Democratic voters, but I think also Democratic leaning independents want to hear that the Democratic Party is willing to tell the truth about what's happening to the Republican Party. I mean, I, I think that it has been very interesting and revealing that Joe Biden, who has always been a cautious politician, has adopted this newfound aggressiveness in calling out Republican extremism. Yeah, It's been really something to see people who routinely call their Democratic opponents socialists and advocates of infanticide, uh, characterize LGBTQ people and those who support them as groomers. To see them really losing their mind over Biden's comment that MAGA Republicans are, quote, semi-fascists has been revealing. And I think a lot of people in the Democratic coalition, wherever you are ideologically, have found that refreshing to just call them, to see somebody with his seniority and his you know, pedigree calling them out for what they really are. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I really want to stress this. I think people, voters need to hear it, right? Yes. They, they, voters they need to hear, hear it. it. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I mean, they've been, the right has tried to make this into another backlash, like the one we saw when Hillary Clinton said that half of Trump's supporters belonged in a basket of deplorables. But I'm not sure it's landing the way they want. And a big problem for their messaging on this is that their supporters keep sending bomb threats to children's hospitals. <laughs> And, you know, showing up at events with guns and hassling people and uh, vowing to shoot FBI agents, et cetera, et cetera. And also every day there are new arrests and trials for January 6th insurrectionists. So it makes it very hard to say that you're being unfairly targeted when you're called a semi-fascist and your base, you know, is fully fascist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I, Greg I, Sargent, I, I, I believe we are out of time. I've taken more time than I asked for you for, and I, I really want to want to tell you how much I appreciate your time. Oh, absolutely. It's always fun, man. Folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and come right back. Thank you. 
Sucht nach dir hält mich wach. So gern hätte ich dich hier. Ich zähle schon die Stunde nach. Bin ich nicht bald bei dir? Vielleicht denkst auch du an mich, an Stunden voller Glück, dass ich endlich zu dir komme, zu dir zurück. Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland, and we're joined now by Mark Joseph Stern. Mark is a senior writer at Slate. Uh, and he is he's on the, the legal beat, the justice and courts beat. Uh, Mark, welcome to We've Got Issues. Thank you so much for having me on. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. You know, I, I don't know if I should say welcome back. I know I've had you on a show, but I'm not sure if it was this one or the previous show, my previous radio show. But either way, I'm, I'm very happy to uh, speak with you today. Uh, let us begin uh, talking about a disturbing story out of Florida where uh, Ron DeSantis has fashioned himself into a uh, little tyrant in hopes of becoming Trump's successor or competing with Trump in a presidential primary, perhaps. In April, DeSantis announced the creation of a standalone election police force, uh, in part as a response to some members of his base uh, calling for an audit of 2020 similar to the like embarrassing boondoggles that happened in Arizona and Wisconsin. So then last month, a half year later, DeSantis holds a press conference to announce that his new police unit had made 20 arrests for criminal voting fraud. And before we get into the details of this, I think listeners need to understand the context, which is um, the Florida Republican party's relentless fight to counteract the will of Florida voters. Mark, can you take us back to 2018 and just remind us about that whole thing over Amendment 4? Yeah, of course. So Florida had, until 2018, a law on the books that dated back to the Jim Crow era that permanently disenfranchised people convicted of felony offenses uh, unless they went before this parole board that was led by the governor and pleaded to have their civil rights back. Uh, And basically, Republican governors only gave back rights to straight white men who said they would vote for Republicans. Floridians decided to change that by enacting Amendment 4 in 2018. It it was a ballot initiative that said basically almost everyone who has a a felony offense on their record can get the right to vote back once they have served out their sentence. And there were a few exceptions for people convicted of certain murder offenses and certain sex offenses. So the people of Florida overwhelmingly passed Amendment 4, and it should have simply taken effect immediately. People were already lining up to vote when it when it you know was supposed to be uh, the law of the land. But the Republican-controlled legislature and Ron DeSantis, who opposed this this uh, reform, they decided to enact this extremely um, I think malicious law 
that did a couple things. First, it, it made it very difficult for anyone to actually ter- determine whether they had their rights back and whether they qualified to vote under Amendment 4. Um, they refused to create just a straightforward system where you could request information and get it quickly. Um, it, it, they also decided to require everyone to pay off all of their fines and fees that are associated with the sentence before they could regain the right to vote. Now, Florida is a pioneer in what we call cash registration justice. Um, As soon as you get a public defender and walk into court, you are going to be charged a ton of money uh, in what are basically convenience fees, I think a bank would call them. You have to pay to get your analysis. You have to pay to apply for a public defender. You have to pay for various hearings. And so people who are convicted of felonies end up with thousands of dollars in debt to courts. And the legislature said, all right, well, if you haven't paid off every penny of that, then you can't vote. And also, no one has kept track of how much money you owe. So you can try to vote if you want. But if we then discover that you haven't paid back even just a single dollar of your fines and fees, we will charge you with illegal voting and throw you in prison. So that's the kind of short version of how Republicans ended up defanging this major constitutional amendment in Florida that was supposed to bring millions and millions of people back into the electorate. It's um, they're so relentless in their assaults on democracy. They're just relentless and they're and creative, and it's it's incredibly frustrating. And I want to add just another piece of context. I I do like to kind of, you know, take a bird's eye view of these things. Sometimes I think it's important. A few years back, the New York Times did a story on the history of felon disenfranchisement laws across the country. And it noted that there was a massive expansion of these laws in the post-Civil War South. And here I quote, um, these were handed down mostly, quote, when Southern lawmakers were working feverishly to neutralize the black electorate. Statutes uh, Statutes that allowed correctional systems to arbitrarily and permanently strip large numbers of people of the right to vote were a particularly potent tool in the campaign to undercut African-American political power. I'm also going to just cite this study, a 2004 study. I've written about this, by the, by the way, a few years back for the nation. So I have all these, <laughs> I have all this stuff in my, in my like little folder of stuff. Um, this, this was a study by scholars at the University of Minnesota, and they found that between 1850 and 2002, and again, I quote, states with larger proportions of non-whites in their prison populations were more likely to pass disenfranchisement laws even after statistically controlling for the effects of time, region, economic competition between blacks and whites, partisan control of government, and punitiveness. So that's that's the history. And another reason, by the way, why the right has been uh, so um, focused on keeping teachers from accurate, you know, giving an accurate portrayal of our history. It's that's, that's the kind of stuff they don't want kids to learn. Anyway. Of course. That brings... And, and I, I should point out just briefly that, you know, that's how Amendment 4 operated or, or how Florida operated before Amendment 4. Uh, a, a vastly disproportionate number of people who were disenfranchised were black, especially black men. I mean, something like one in four black men at various points were stripped of the right to vote. Um, this is by design. That is the system that uh, was set up to prevent people of color from accessing the ballots. And 
sadly, it is still working even at this moment, even though That's right. theoretically this law has been repealed. And I want to remind people that the actual critical race theory, actual critical race theory, um, you know, that you can, if you wanted to boil it down to a very simple kind of definition, it is the study of how um, laws and regulations that are racially neutral on their face have a disproportionate racial impact um, by and by design. So that this is a great example of that. Okay, so now we're in August 2022. We've got 20 arrests for DeSantis's new voter fraud squad. Um, Mark, it is pretty clear, given everything that we're talking about, that they did not focus their energy on the villages where a number of Trump supporters were have been given a slap on the wrist after being caught intentionally voting twice. Where, where were these arrests located? So these arrests were all done in heavily Democratic counties in the southern Shocking. part of the state. That's, I'm glad so, I was sitting yeah. down for that, Mark. I really am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. And do we know who was arrested? So we know that 20 individuals, as you said, were arrested and that every individual had a disqualifying offense. So they had a felony conviction that even after Amendment 4, um, sadly, prevented them from voting. Um, and we also know, and we'll get into this soon, that they registered and were approved by the government of the state of Florida to vote and did so in reliance on the promise from the state that they were lawfully permitted to cast a ballot. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is the crucial point here. Um, before we get to that, though, I do want to say that from a propaganda perspective, it was smart uh, to single out people who had been convicted, according to DeSantis, for very serious crimes, rape and murder, and not, you know, not go after, say, former felons who had been convicted of, like, nonviolent drug offenses or whatnot. Yeah, um, I, so I, that's correct, although I will say, like, Florida's, you know, I'm not, I'm not apologizing for, for offenses related to homicide or, or, or sex offenses, but Florida's criminal laws are written so broadly that a lot of offenses you would not necessarily expect to qualify as a murder charge or a sex offense charge uh, still fall in that bucket, in part because the state wants to inflict a maximum amount of punishment on those people, not just during their, their prison sentence, but afterwards when there's all kinds of um, new penalties that they're saddled with, like, for instance, getting put on the sex offender registry and being unable to get a job or or go anywhere near a school. Yeah. Yeah. OK. And, and Florida is is becoming increasingly authoritarian across the board. Um, and just in case there are listeners who want to give the benefit of the doubt to DeSantis and his Office of Election Crimes and Security or whatever, um, Peter Antonacci He's a former Broward County supervisor of elections, former counsel to then Republican Governor Rick Scott. He's a Federalist Society member. Uh, this is the guy that DeSantis put in charge. And he said this of the arrest recently. He said, quote, you'll see more of these actions and you'll see more of these actions until the people who are behind it quit promoting it. And that is pure right-wing conspiracy theory. He didn't say George Soros, but it was implied, right? Right. Um, <laughs> And so, and that brings us back, Mark, you know, it's safe to say that the quote people behind it, the actual people behind it were working for Rick, Ron DeSantis, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, if you're talking about who greenlighted 
every single individual's voter registration application who uh, gave them the permission to begin participating in elections and casting ballots once again, that responsibility falls entirely on individuals in the Ron DeSantis administration who were appointed specifically by the governor. So how did that work? So they they said, okay, you can vote, and then they go and arrest them? Yes, that's basically it. Um, To get a little more granular, what happens in Florida is if you want to register to vote, and I I grew up in Florida, I've been through this process myself. So if if you want to register to vote, you go to your uh, county election supervisor, and you submit your application, and they forward that application to the state of Florida uh, government, specifically the Department of State and the Division of Elections, which are both run by DeSantis appointees right now. Uh, So the Department of State and Division of Elections have access to this database of uh, people who've committed felonies and felony offenses, and they have the legal obligation under state law to flag any individual who tries to register to vote who has a felony offense on their record that is disqualifying, that prevents them from voting, as all 20 of these individuals arrested by DeSantis did. Um, This is not, I'm not like making this up. This is enshrined under state statute. It is in the rule book for for the office of the Secretary of State. Like this is how it has long worked in Florida. And if the uh, if the government officials do not flag somebody, then the supervisor of elections gets the green light and they say, OK, congratulations, you've registered to vote and you can cast a ballot. And if they do flag somebody, then that triggers this whole process where the person can petition and say you got the wrong guy or that their their offense was was not actually disqualifying and they get like an appeal and a hearing and all of that. But none of that happened here. Nobody who got arrested by Ron DeSantis was flagged by the state of Florida. Instead, they were all green lighted or I guess rubber stamped. And the government told county supervisors, all right, these folks are good to go. You can register them to vote, give them a voter registration card, and we'll see them at the polls at the next election. And now they're charged with felonies. And now they are charged with a third degree felony of unlawful voting, which brings up to five years in prison. And is that the basis that is that what leads you to you predict in the piece that these charges are going to fall apart? Is that the basis? Is it a straightforward case of like entrapment? So that's not the the chief basis to my mind. Um, Entrapment is actually, unfortunately, very difficult to prove in court. Our Supreme Court, this may shock you, is not very friendly to defendants who are entrapped, uh, and it's set a very high bar. Um, the, the thing that I think will really tank the case here is that the statute, that the, the third degree felony here, voting illegally, right, it has a state of mind requirement, as every criminal law must. And it says that you are guilty of this offense if you vote knowing with the knowledge that you are not permitted to vote. So you only can be found guilty under this law if Prosecutors can prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that you knew you were not allowed to cast a ballot and you did it anyway. And every single one of these individuals was given a voter registration card and a congratulations letter saying, guess what? You have been approved by the government to vote in Florida. And I just do not see how prosecutors could possibly win a single conviction when all of these defendants have ample evidence that they had no idea they weren't allowed to vote because the authority here, the government told them that they could. 
So, and I just want to, I'm going to go back to what I mentioned snarkily earlier on. Um, just last week, uh, there was yet another elderly Republican person at the Villages, who lives in the Villages, and um, she voted twice, and she did it willfully, right? Um, <clears throat> so exactly that, you know, that intent, the intent was clear. They, they made it clear that this was something she tried to do. And she um, was offered a pretrial intervention program that will allow her to avoid uh, prison time. So basically, she needs to do some community service. She was not charged with a felony. Um, so I mean, it's, it's so it's so stark. It really is. So if you are correct that this falls apart, Mark, and I certainly hope you are, what will these people who had presumably served their terms and were trying to like rebuild their lives go through in the interim? So we know that at least one and probably more of these defendants were arrested by a SWAT team at 6 a.m. in the morning. They were pulled out of bed uh, with helicopters overhead uh, and, you know, full on SWAT gear crew dragging them to jail. One individual was in his underwear. He was not permitted to put on his clothes. Um, some of these individuals, if they are still on probation, and I'm unclear if there are still any terms left of their sentence that they have to serve, this could really uh, mess them up. They will have to, to explain to their probation officer why they have been dragged off to jail and, you know, put on the TV as uh, as a criminal voter fraud conspirator. Um, and of course, they've all had to go to and spend time in jail uh, when, again, I think they are innocent. And they have had to experience the, you know, the worst parts of the criminal justice system, which treats people like that as if they are presumptively guilty, in part because they already have uh, a previous felony offense. And unfortunately, our justice system does not look kindly upon alleged recidivism. So uh, this is going to ruin their lives in the short term. Even if they are acquitted, I think it's going to take a very long time for them to put everything back together. And they'll be running up the same kinds of fees that uh, that were the issue in the first place. Um, this is a great example of what I was talking about in the opening with these right-wing authoritarian governors using real people as political pawns to make propaganda. And um, it's, it's outrageous. Uh, folks, we are about out of time. I just want to recommend one other piece that Mark had up last week at uh, Slate.com because it relates to the Biden student debt relief plan that we discussed on last week's show. Mark is pretty sure that the six uh, right wing activists on Trump's Supreme Court will figure out some reason, you know, they'll dig deep and figure out some reason to block the forgiveness. But he is also bullish on the administration's chances of working around an adverse ruling. So I, I would urge everybody to check it out. It's titled SCOTUS will probably kill student debt relief, but Biden has a backup plan. It's at slate.com. Mark, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Of course. Really appreciate you having me on. I'd also like to thank Greg Sargent and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternate and Ross Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I'd like to thank all of you excellent and discerning people for tuning in. Have a terrific week. Cause I did